Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ertube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. Welcome to Struggle Care. It's the podcast about self-care and mental health by a host that hates the term self-care and doesn't always have great mental health. I am here today with a friend of mine named Rebecca, and you may know her as the white woman whisperer on TikTok. So hello, Rebecca. Hello, Casey. I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad I'm here too. We recorded an episode together that ended up being (laughs) so long because you and I can't stop talking. Isn't that great? It's a good (laughs) problem to have. I'll take it. Yeah, I think so. We'll do our best to... um, be professional podcasters. Okay, so for the listeners, Rebecca and I met, I was actually taking a course, an anti-racism cohort. And there was like this section about Black history. And at the end, it was like, reach out to a Black person in your network and ask them, like, how were they taught Black history? And so I sat there and I was like, okay. And I don't know why you came to mind first, but I was like, and I didn't really even know you that well. Also, that's a real humbling moment in your anti-racism cohort where they're like a black person in your network and you're like, oh, shit. I gotta find. I gotta find one. And I'm like, what black person in my network is not going to be offended by me being like, hey, you're black. I was told to find a black. And I was here, told to find you're a mine. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember being like, okay, you and I had exchanged some messages and you were making like anti-racism content. Mm-hmm. So I felt like, okay. For white women too. I mean, yeah. You know. Yeah. I felt like, okay, safe bet. Yes. And I was in that phase, which I still am sometimes where I'm like terrified of making a mistake. Yeah. I get that. It's fun when you bring your like perfectionism into anti-racism work. Ooh, yeah. That's the killer. That will do it for you. But I was so happy to see the message from you. And I know that must have been so weird. But I mean, I was open, especially it was the beginning. I was so naive and like innocent and excited. And, you know, you were one of my first mutuals where I was like, I think I may actually be doing something here. Like, it's got the right vibe. I like what she's doing. Like, your content inspired a bit of my content in terms of moral neutrality and not that perfectionism in terms of even being a Black person. So it just made a lot of sense. I was like, all right, let's see what this is going to be like. The questions were interesting, though. (laughs) Well, and you quite literally had a huge role and a turning point for me. Like, it was... Gosh, it must have been like a year ago now. Like it was a while ago. It was a while. And I Mm -hmm. had a woman call me out because I had made a video where I had referenced having locks when I was like 19. And I was kind of making a joke out of it. But the joke was just like, look at this thing I did. Oh, my God, I was 19. 
And she left a message about like, hey, this doesn't sit right with me. You're like making light of it, but it's like kind of a big deal to some of us. But the problem was, is that I just like glanced at her profile. Well, so first I was like, okay, I hear you. And I took the video down. And then she started commenting being like, hey, you're not being accountable. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And she was really passionate about it. And I mistakenly, because I just kind of glanced at her profile picture, thought that she was a white woman. And so I came out like guns blazing, like, you know, how I would talk to some, because sometimes that happens. Like other white women want to like outwoke me. Oh my gosh. Yes. They try to outwoke me. So, and I just don't have a lot of tolerance for it. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I bet. I come out quick too, especially when you see a lot of comments all the time. It happens. It happens. Turns out she identified as mixed. Okay. She was like, no, I'm talking about my culture, my own experience. See, like you have actually offended me. And Anyways, details of this are not important, but basically, you know, I talked to her, we sort of worked it out and I'm in an apology. And, but what started happening was that like, you know, on TikTok, the peanut gallery, like everybody, oh, actually, I just learned that the peanut gallery is like a racist term as well. So that's not the best term to use. So did I. Okay. So lots of commenters, all of a sudden I was getting flooded with comments that were like, half of them were like this is no big deal. You should not be making like, just let it go. And then half of the comments were like, yeah, no, you need to like do something about this. This was really horrible. And I was in that period of my anti-racism journey where I was really into like, listen to black people, listen to black people. But the split was all black people. It was like half of the black people saying in my comments saying like, uh, ignore that girl. She's making too big of a deal of it. And then half of them being like, no, this is very, very serious. And so I was like paralyzed and I was like, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And I happened upon your content at that time. And I started like binge scrolling your content. And you had this one video where somebody was saying to you, like, I'm so afraid of making a mistake. I'm so afraid of saying the wrong thing. And you had said to her, like, I mean, what's the worst that could happen if you make a mistake, if you say the wrong thing? And she was like, well, like, I don't like when I'm trying to do the right thing and people mistakenly think I've done something racist. And so like now they think I've done the wrong thing, even though I've done the right thing. And you literally looked at the camera and you were like, you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> even if all of that is true, you will be fine. You will literally be okay in the real use of literally. You know, you are on, this is the safest I can be as a black woman is on the internet. And for white women to say they are scared, especially afraid, this type of language of being disliked by a black person, maybe at worst case, you know, they don't like you. Okay. They yell things on the internet at you and, and mistake your intentions. They will get over it and probably not even yell at you, to be honest, probably make jokes and you'll feel a little silly. And that's, your moment. What do you do with that? I've had some amazing comebacks, not comebacks as in clapbacks or callouts, but people just going, oh, I messed up. And then they get so much respect from restraint. And just to, you know, I remember when there was a big TikTok drama and you reached out and told me that you had utilized some of my work to just not and that you were so grateful that you had made the choice to not do something is amazing. And it's like, oh, all I want to see come out of this is like, it can be easier than this. Like what you guys are doing is 
daunting because what perfect dialogue are you expecting to have where you know exactly what's going to happen, what the other person is going to say? That's also a problem with that sentiment to me. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going to be mad or you know what we're going to do. You know, we deal with physical violence and generational fear. I'm not so concerned about being insulted or offended. These aren't words that we're focused on. Yeah, that was the part that really sort of like shook me out of that moment was that, and I get it, like social rejection, even perceived, like our nervous system, that hits hard. It can feel sometimes like the same thing as physical danger because that's how desperate we are. You know, that's how much worth at stake for us. But the reality is, is that if a white person mistakes your intentions in real life, that can can and does lead to violence, right? You could be jogging through a neighborhood. And if a white man mistakes your intentions, decides they don't like you, that leads to violence. And for me, if I do something and a Black person mistakes my intentions, I'm going to be fine. Maybe they don't like me, but like, okay, I'll Even survive. that's a stretch. You know, we don't know. You're on the internet. Is it? We don't yeah. know you. And I think some of that is, you know, check the self-importance there. You know, Black people are trying to live and survive and get through generational trauma. And we're finally able to speak our minds without that fear of physical harm happening the moment we speak. And that's why you see so many amazing conversations happening. If you're listening to Black TikTok, not because they haven't been had before. It's just that the voices have been silenced. So, you know, we throw things out there. We're not concerned about perfectionism in our conversation. And I am not concerned with perfectionism because I'm like, who knows when they're going to shut this down and stop listening. I need to get this information out there. And if you think about the intentions of Black people when they speak, which never happens, you will find that it's actually not that hard to listen and move forward from there. But I feel like the intention conversation happens after an offense or wrongdoing has already been pointed out. Now we want to talk about intention. But what about my intention on making the video that you got upset about? You know, why did I do that? And no one, I don't see that in those who get upset. You know, I see that obviously from those who are doing the work, but well, and in that moment, like I felt as though like I'd spoken to her privately. We had had a conversation about like, I bungled this. How can I make this right? And so she and I had already had that conversation. And the leftover panic was just my image, my PR, like all of these people in the comment section where I was wanting to prove myself. I was wanting to defend myself. I was wanting to say like, no, here's how you're wrong. You think I am. And that's where like that TikTok you made. And I think I even messaged you about that. specific. I was like, this just saved my life because I was able to take a beat and just learn to tolerate that it felt bad that these people, and I want to say theoretical, they're not theoretical, they're literal people, but they're also like not people I know that like affect my life in any way. So it's just like the idea that theoretically a black person could think that I was racist, it was like causing me genuine panic. And I think the most eye-opening thing in my journey of going through that cohort and of listening to creators like you was realizing in any moment, like my clarifying question was like, okay, Am I concerned about how to actually impact like Black liberation for good? Or am I concerned about being liked and approved of by Black people? Right. By every Black person. 
because you had, you had it, like you admittedly had black people on your side. And I want you to consider that a lot of those black people that were not happy with you weren't actual black people. So I know we talked about they are people, but I find a lot of, they know how afraid white people are of messing up and having a black person not like them. So often I will have people come into my comments and start a phrase with, as a black woman, I don't agree with you. And got to tell you, that gives you away right there. We don't walk into the room and announce our race and gender because it's there in front of you every single day. How we speak is what tells you that. But I often have digital blackface happening in my comments to shut maybe other white people down who are coming to my aid or trying to explain. They'll throw in a uh, I'm black at the end. Yeah. And, you know, cannot capitalize the B and then make, you know, it never the math doesn't math. But I know that it does silence people. So there's that, too. Well, it's so true, because the woman who had made the original comment was a light skinned mixed woman. But like even she didn't feel the need to say I'm black. Right. And this bothered me. Right. Which was where, you know, right? Like you do not qualify. Like of all people, you'd think that she would feel like she had to qualify herself. And she's like, no, I'm black. I'm mixed. And she identified as mixed, but she also talked about being black, which is why I'm using them interchangeably. But so that's just interesting to reflect back on that. She's like, I'm talking about myself. It's one of those funny things I remember in the beginning. I said, you know what's funny? I realized that white women walk into the comment section announcing themselves all the time. It, it was just like a funny thing to me. It's just like, hey, I'm pale and or I'll come in with like a funny description for white. I'm a white woman and this. I'm neurodivergent and this. You know, some qualifier. And that is a so, like, characteristic, I believe, of white supremacy now that I can see it in bulk and realize that we never do that. I've never felt the need to start with why you should listen to me. But in whiteness, your category comes first. And it's always with our like white ass faces in the profile picture too. Like I didn't need the descriptor, Sally. (laughs) (laughs) I know for so many other reasons than the beginning of your sentence. You know, I know what you sound like. I know the talking points. I see the picture. I mean, what you're going to speak to is probably going to let me know. You're not going to use AAVE, you know, African-American vernacular English. Oh, and the way well, when I get into that, the, the, the literal understanding of Black language is, is another thing we could work on in comment sections. But that's for later times. I have this like line, and I've never actually said it to anybody because I'm not sure how appropriate it is. But it's it, I think it in my head, especially when like, because I've seen someone say, something that is racist. And maybe to them, they wouldn't recognize it as racist. Like they would recognize it as like, oh, maybe it's a micro. It's like, no, it's just all racism. And when they're called out and someone uses a she, her pronoun, they'll get really angry about like, I'm actually not she, her. Like either they'll say I am a man or I don't use those pronouns or my favorite is like, why would you assume I'm a woman? And you know what I say in my head? And you can tell me if this is like shitty to say to someone. I always want to be like, I mean, white woman is as white woman does. Exactly. Like, I don't care if you're actually a w- woman or a man or white or whatever. Like, I'm just saying. Because no one identifies as white once they're pointed out as white. And the other thing is, I'll just be talking to someone and say, hey, you're wrong. And they'll say, why do you assume I'm white? I didn't, but, (laughs) you know, it's not even a thing, right? Like no one's technically white. So the moment you get called out and you say, I'm not this, it's like, okay, well, you're white enough for me. 
Okay, you could be black and be white enough for me because the conversation is about white supremacy and white supremacist behavior to me, not about people, individuals, or, you know, what you're about. I can't take the time and focus that much on individuals. I'll never get anywhere. I have to focus on behaviors, especially if I see them over and over and over again. I don't need to know much about you to address this talking point. But there's always this, I'm special. I want to talk a little bit about white supremacy, but I want, let's take a pause real quick and we'll be right back. Perfect. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash struggle. That's rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash STRUGGLE, promo code STRUGGLE. Okay, we're back. And when we talk about that term white supremacy, I feel like I can like hear my white listeners, like their little toes curl. Because a lot of us were really taught growing up to believe that white supremacy is believing consciously that Black people are inferior to white people, that white people should sort of rule, that it should be this like very Hitler-esque, like white Aryan society with our little pointy cloak hats and burning crosses. And it has been very eye-opening to me to talk about white supremacy as something more than that. So do you have like a working definition that you use with white people about what it means when we talk about white supremacy? Hmm. I do not have a working definition and I also don't have a a cute analogy for it yet. Well, I guess I do. I will, in a basic sense, I like to formulate it around the behavior I'm trying to address. So white supremacy is foundational to the conversation we are trying to have. If you're interested in reading the book Cast by Isabel World Kersen, I suggest reading from Black people that are alive today, one, um, and she is. And it's to understand it as a system, a caste system. So we really don't even have to discuss 
race or racism if you discuss it as a caste. It, we saw caste systems, I see them in India, and we see them in Nazi Germany and here in America. And she reviews the three as systems that you can see as a set of behaviors, laws that were put in place based on this specific caste system for us was white male property ownership. Based on those three things, we will now formulate the rules in order to dictate behaviors that will continue this value system. If that makes sense. I like to envision it as a pyramid and the bottom is just like white supremacy. And then our laws and our institutions are created based off of that so that we make sure our education system is based off of that, our financial institution, our healthcare system, everything comes with the assumption that the white men that created it, that their characteristics and what they saw as important is across the board. That's like the most powerful definition I've ever heard, honestly. Which is impressive for starting out with, I have no definition. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> this is usually how I just kind of, we get there. I know, but no, you're right. Because it's this idea that it's a value system. And that, and I think about that sometimes when people talk about the constitution, when they'll like some argument about whether or not we should do something in our country will be like, well, but that's not what's like the constitution says this. And that's not what they meant, not what they want. And sometimes I just want to be like, what if it's just like, wrong? It, it was a bunch of dudes in a room just because they wore different clothes and had white curled up hair that didn't make them special. And I think we have, you know, made them this mystical dudes. And if they were in button downs and khaki pants, would you see that constitution as some magical piece of paper that they had more information than we have? Like if Elon Musk and Bill Gates and like George Bush... And Jeff Bezos like walked out of room and be like, we have a document. Yes. And this is how we're going to run everything. And I mean, listen, I think that there are parts of the Constitution that are inspirational and beautiful, but it's not like they intended that to apply to anyone but them. <laughs> right. It's, and then set up all the laws based off of that and the small number and the size of that triangle. Yeah, it can grow, but it can't really change. It's just going to get like taller and fewer and because it's based on this static nonsensical imagination based value system. It's not based and on one of those values at all. is perfectionism. Like when I first started sort of learning about racism and being willing to believe that I had unconscious racist beliefs, one of the things that I realized was causing that like now I'm too afraid to make mistakes. Now I don't want to say anything to anybody because what if I make mistakes and I don't want people to not like me. And it was pointed out to me like that level of perfectionism that you think if you can't be right, you're going to be cast aside and rejected and that will make you worthless. And so you're clinging to it. Like that is a value of white supremacy. Yes. You will never achieve that. That is a treadmill. Like not every culture has that value. Right. Sometimes just making it, <laughs> just figuring it out. And what does that look like for you? Who are you? The system, you know, I, I thought about the phrase, there's no I in team. Why do we like that? <laughs> I am important, okay? In a team, if there's no I, we're just doing whatever we're told to do. You have no opinion that is valuable. And it's just not true. If you hadn't decided to make a TikTok, if I hadn't decided to make a TikTok, because you know what? Might as well. And to expect perfectionism, we'll never move. I would never put out anything. You would never put out anything. And we just stay quiet. 
Sounds gross. Sounds gross. I don't want that. My first TikToks were me being like, this is how you cook chicken. And then the comment section would be like, that's not how you cook chicken. And I'd be like, just kidding. Here's another way to cook chicken. Like I just, <laughs> I genuinely started doing how-to ones being like, I don't, I'm just making this up. Like, this is what I think I know. <laughs> and it's funny. <laughs> Once you realize if you can't do it, like there's no, oh, I would like to say there's no destination. So people look at it as like, I'll get to this place. Like, how do you get comfortable talking about this? When do you finish where now you're like, I'm good. And that's just not how life should be because there is no destination anywhere. It should be about the journey and it should be about making those mistakes and then highlighting those mistakes. This would not be an impactful demonstration of anti-racism if you didn't say, I did this and then I did this instead and now I feel better. If you just went in with, how do I, I wouldn't be able to really work with that because you are a part of it. Everybody is. Can I tell you a totally tangential joke? Please do. So when the Little Mermaid like preview came out and I hadn't seen it yet and they were talking about the like Little Mermaid being black and for like a hot couple of weeks, I thought we were talking about Halle Berry. (laughs) Well, okay, that's reasonable because it sounds, but here's, it sounds exactly alike. But what's funny to me is like when I realized it wasn't the same person, my first thought was like, Casey, like... You need to get real serious about your anti-racism work. Like, not every black person is the same just because it's the same name. Like, God, like, see black people as people. And then, like, but so I was, like, kind of being very somber with myself about, like, let's look at ourselves. And then I realized that, like, I also thought that, like, Josh Groban and Josh Brolin were the same person. Yeah. I mean, give yourself, not everything that serious. <laughs> And I just recently found out that the lead singer of Florence and the Machine did not star in a movie with Harry Styles. Oh. That is, in fact, not the same person, even though her name is Florence. So anyways, I was just laughing at myself because my initial thought was like, wow, we got to do some work. And I was like, nope, just stupid. Nope. Just stupid. (laughs) Not this one. Not this one. But I like that you're out here. I like that you're on the lookout. I showed up to the game. There may not have been a game that day, but I was in my uniform. I was ready. Close. It was a close one. It was a close one. Okay. Okay. We're going to do the same thing we did with the last podcast, which is I have actual questions here. Okay. Let's go. One of the things that I loved learning about you was your experience of your own racial identity growing up. So can you tell us about your mom and your dad? I can. So my mom is Jewish from Brooklyn and my father is Jamaican who also moved to Brooklyn, but was born in Jamaica, came here when he was 15 and they somehow found each other. He also was a Jehovah's Witness growing up, um, which adds a cute little element of fun, (laughs) the whole ex-cult life. And uh, my grandmother died still a part of Jehovah's Witnesses. They lived together. That was interesting as well. And, you know, nice little Jewish kids. We worked it out. So just based off that alone, I kind of was prepared for this non-traditional life that I did not realize was so foreign. Because I grew up mostly in Teaneck, New Jersey, which was the first town to voluntarily integrate their schools. Very proud of that. I grew up with so many biracial friends just because we were friends, not because we were biracial. We just happened to be. I knew a black Japanese girl, a bunch of... I was the only Jewish person that was brown in my Hebrew school, but I was okay with it. I was fine. You know, I did ballet and maybe I was the only brown girl. No, probably not, but one of few. And I knew that. 
I knew I was brown. And I would say brown. You know, when Brown Cinderella came out, it was brown Cinderella, not black to me when Brandy was uh, Cinderella. But when my brother was born, he was very white looking. And I was aware, you know, maybe not when he was first born, but even my father would say I'd ask him, you know, what if when we learn about Martin Luther King, what if it goes back and you and I, dad, are not allowed in the same places mom and Brandon are? And he told me, I didn't know what to say to you because he hadn't realized that I had realized. But by that point, I mean, my hair was different. I'm a child. I'm not an alien. And so when we have these conversations about if kids should be learning, it's like, well, they are, you know, they can see, I can see things with my eyeballs. And he just said, you know, that'll never happen. And I was like, okay, good. We're in this new world. We're all good with this multiracial family. It's never going to go back. And I don't have to worry about it. And you know? how did that change <laughs> when you entered corporate America in the Midwest? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, and it's, I think corporate America, period, is a big shift. And I didn't realize at first, you know, it's like one of those things where in hindsight, it's very clear. I wore my hair straight. Um, if you don't know, my hair is very curly right now. It's in its natural state has been since I was 26, though, because the world tells you as a black woman, what your hair needs to look like. It needs to be fixed and professional. Another one of those white supremacy values, professionalism, not being professional, but what professionalism means, what kinds of things are professional. It's not what you wear every day. It's not how you look every day. It's how that guy looks every day. And what they naturally do, you have to look like. To me, it's if you are living in your black self and you are, you have this rich experience, a deep color is like how I like to think about it. And like blacks in this depth of something. And then you go out into the world and into corporate or into professional world. And it's, it's pastel. White supremacy to me is pastel. Yeah, there may be variations in colors, but you know, it's all pastel. It's got this light twinge to it. And that keeps it all even and in the same family. So when we show up to work, we have to powder ourselves up to be as pastel as possible and make sure we do not disrupt that powder. We don't move too fast. We don't take any off because the second you, you know, it's, you can see through that, we get called out on it and are made to feel as though we don't belong in that place. And we can see through that powder you're wearing and you're not really one of us. And that is exhausting to turn that power down and, have to not knowing why, because your value is based on how pastel you show up is hard for the brain, at least for my brain, because I understood, you know, if you do something well, it will be reflected as such. And someone will say, hey, you did a good job on this. You know, you can't get past that. But with professionalism, you can get past that. I can do everything right. Yeah, I remember you telling me that you were like kicking butt, taking names. You were putting out more measurable like KPI output than everyone else on the team, including the people that were supposed to be your managers. Yep. And that was a mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake somehow. I didn't learn the rules of professionalism. I was the first person in my family to go to college um, and to graduate. And then I went to business school and I thought I was doing something by, you know, wearing my curly natural hair to business school. And I was very proud and forthright about my blackness and that I'm here to change things, but also to do a good job and to have these conversations. And it does not matter 
because of this little thing that I call pet to threat. Someone else coined it because it's great to have you on, you know, black women and look at your hair. And then a little bit of the actual petting and the touching that happened here in Chicago did not happen in New Jersey. That once you start kind of speaking back on it and making your presence known and being very good at the job, now you are a threat to those who need to see themselves as higher than you. And I did not know that was going to happen. I thought it would make us all look good. But if you're focused on hierarchy and you're focused on the fact that you are my manager and now you can't instruct, there's a desire to help from white people is what I see in this hierarchical structure. If you're up higher than someone, your role is to help them. And I would rather have had support, but because, you know, I'm good at what I do, always have been. That's how I got there. And then to show up and have a white man ask me if I'm scared of PowerPoint or if I know that this email is my canvas and this is where I can show my skills and write out things. Meanwhile, I I just, you know, one plus one wasn't equaling two and my brain was not. What was truth? I didn't know what truth was anymore. That to the point where it's like, I could, I am doing so much and being treated so little, like such a little thing. I was told them this. I was very forthright and professional. I brought it to HR with HR language, but none of that mattered. Just like when we talk about on TikTok, you can put everything right. And at the end of the day, he will say, well, I need to help you understand what I am trying to tell you. You need to have empathy for me in this situation because I have kids and I am working through stuff as well. You know, meanwhile, there's protests and I'm speaking on behalf of Black people at work. So I know this is kind of all over, but you know, there was a pandemic and I'm doing my job and I'm also educating white women at this job, which made me realize I could do this work as a white woman whisperer. So, you know, screw him. And they asked you to do that, right? They asked me to do it. Yes, they won awards based on what I did. Was I the recipient of that award? Award? No. They won multiple awards off of my work, but somehow still. But then you weren't a team player. Right. I wasn't, you know, maybe a cultural fit. I wasn't spending my time the way I was supposed to, listening and obeying, I guess, rules that did not exist. You know, there was silent treatment, but then also micromanaging at the same time. And it just, there was no right way. And I needed that lesson, but I would rather other Black women in the workplace not get the lesson I got in the way that I received it, especially these younger generations. It was terrible. So I want to take a pause there. And when we come back, I want to talk about the impact that had on your mental health. I have a six-year-old that's really into learning, learning books, learning apps, learning shows, but I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long and she can stay engaged. She likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. 
Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultra Lotto in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. Okay, we're back with Rebecca, the white woman whisperer. And I mean, okay, so this is the Struggle Care podcast, right? Like my book is How to Keep House While Drowning, my TikTok channel. It's really all about how to do life and care for yourself when you have barriers in your life. And so I have a lot of people that follow me that have mental illness, mental health issues, that are neurodivergent, that are stressed, that are, you know, maybe they have kids or they just lost somebody or they're chronically ill. And so there's like all these different reasons why, you know, you could be experiencing like limited capacity or barriers in your life. And one of the things that I've learned from you and other Black creators on TikTok and Black authors and is that the racism isn't just like some uncomfortable thing you experience, that it creates this holistic layer of chronic stress. And so can you talk a little, because you had taken a leave from how much stress that caused. So what did that do to your mental health? Well, it wasn't great. I'll tell you that much. It definitely wasn't great. It wasn't a good time. But you know, I'm just so grateful that during that time, I had my boyfriend who is Black and very educated in the Black experience from a generational information standpoint. He came from the South and went to an HBCU, a historically Black college university. And when I was on the brink, I had someone to say, no, this isn't about you. Because I was so sure that I was doing something wrong, even though I would stay up. I would hyperventilate before work because I was, you know, knowing I had to talk to them. I said in my head, there was something I, there was a correct phrase that I had to say to get them to understand, you know, cause it was not just my manager. It was his manager and the communications between them and the gaslighting of, you know, I get your side, I get his side. And so then I, you know, trying to figure out how to make two people think something is not possible. One, I found out through a lot of therapy and I am still in therapy over it because there's, we are taught that good work should receive good things. At least I was. And maybe in, in terms of my neurodivergency, I relied on that. I relied on the fact that regardless of race, <laughs> regardless of gender, you do the right thing. People can't ignore that because it's right in you your work, face. You work hard, you raise up the ladder. Right. You pull yourself up, all you got to do. And I. so another aspect of this was 
you know, I would go to many people who said they supported me at this job that won awards based off of me. I would talk to them, what am I doing? What can I do? A lot of white women, mostly because that's who I connected with at work and there weren't many other, well, there weren't many other black people, but if there were, it's kind of like, you know, just stick it out. What did you expect type of thing? And I didn't work well with that, but it was always framed as what I could do. You know, if I would go to the VP of HR and say, hey, this is happening. The response was, okay, how can we get you out from under him? As in, what job do you need to do? Like, what job can you apply for within the company that gets you out? And it can't make him look bad. And you can't burn that bridge. But you also, how are you going to framework the conversations with him moving forward? Because you do need his recommendation to get this job. But you are amazing. You cannot leave. We are so happy to have you. You are changed so much. No one said, I'm going to go talk to that man. No one gave me a way out. There was a lot of victim blaming if you want to do that. But so I start not trusting myself. I'm not seeing it from a higher perspective. I'm just seeing, I'm crying in front of so many people as a black woman. And I'm thinking one of these conversations, it's going to hit. And that's tough. I mean, it really sounds, as a therapist, it sounds so similar to when I have counseled families that have like abusive dynamics where like the man is really abusive and the child is constantly being given this burden of, well, here's how you can navigate his anger so that you stay safe. And the wife is often like the nice white lady who's like, I get it. I know it's wrong. I'm so sorry. Right. But they won't leave him and take you with him. Right. They won't stand up to him. And they're similar, probably some, like different, but similar reasons where it's like, oh, I can't put my own oppression on the line. I mean, I'm thinking, don't you want to know if this person is being disrespectful to me and demeaning me just to make a point? And I'm telling him and he's pretending to write things down. And then he lies and says, I called this meeting to HR when I did. And the HR person is on there, not correcting him, listening to him gaslight me the whole time and then claim that I'm not understanding him correctly. And I didn't know gaslighting. I just got out here into Chicago. I moved for this job. I have no family out here. They do the love bombing. So they give you all the stuff in the beginning. I interned first under Black leadership with Black HR, Black everything, and was bait and switched a week after moving to Chicago, in my opinion. Reorg, whatever. And it's, this is my financial livability. And as a Black person who was the first one to come out of college, it's like, this was success. This was supposed to be the spot I got into. I moved, I got this corporate job making almost six figures, you know, and finally the immigrant's daughter makes it. And, but somehow I'm feeling like teeny tiny, but also blown up and so powerful and impactful. And I'm being praised all the time but also being diminished and made to question my own sense of self. During George Floyd protests, where my company talked about looting and rioting, and I just watched this man at all times a day be kneeled on, and I'm connecting dots and things that happened to me and to my brother, who doesn't even look very Black, but he has had guns pointed in his face across the street from my own house in Teaneck this beautiful little community. So to put all of that and then realize what was happening within my own job and how I was questioning myself, and then at the same time get this data that said, you were blowing the numbers away. Like, 
you were serving your customers, <clears throat> they have been looking for you specifically to teach them. And these men not seeing me, I, something just snapped. Is that what Get Out was about? Ooh. Like you were describing that. And all of a sudden I was realizing like that feeling of like, we're in it together. And then like this, like I heard like scary music movie music when it was like dawning on you, like, oh shit, like the call is coming from inside the house. Like these things that have been happening to me and these people that say they love me, but all of a sudden they're talking about looting and rioting, like where you're like, oh God. Yeah. This is against, wait, I'm working for... And they were telling, you know, it was come into the office. This is, you know, we got scientists and the DEI strategy. You know, there was a lot more things in terms of hair touching and stuff that, you know, it was just coming back to me. And how do you, I'm still have trouble processing it and trusting. Um, And I'm still in therapy and I have not gone back to that job. And, you know, realizing what is for me, I've never thought about it. I've just been trying to survive this whole time. And that's what Black people have been taught and trained to do is just up until this point is to, to survive, especially like I think our generation and my dad's was just kind of like, don't like get there, get there and then worry about it. But I got there. It was terrible. And I can imagine like not only first of all, I love that your boyfriend like was the one to ungaslight you and like bring you back to that. That's so huge. And but not only are you experiencing this like extreme like racial gaslighting, racism, racial discrimination, and then everyone gaslighting you about it at work, but then like I see you talk about racism online and I see the comment section just line up with white people going, that's not real. That doesn't happen. We aren't like that. The world's not really like that. And it's just like gaslight upon gaslight. Yeah. So imagine you are already thinking that. Like when I was thinking, thinking, it's how do I explain this to someone and explain to them that it's racist, but really it's just him questioning me at every turn and then deciding it's not right and giving himself credit for things he adds to my work and then giving the credit to me as if he's doing me a favor. Oh, nice on um, nice job adding that sticker on the bottom that he added and says, did you see how I gave you that? I threw that at you. And I, the little, how do I convey that to this third party woman who is already looking for it not to be true. And I, do I just list every event? Do I show these? I mean, I have so many emails. Yeah, this is, please show your creativity. But if when you do add this, add this, add this, and my coworkers texting me on the side, we don't know why he's doing this. I'm so sorry. You have to, can I help you? You could talk to him. But I didn't even think that at the, you know, I'm just thinking, oh, well, that's validation. Well, all the while you knowing, and frankly, like, you know, the word intersectional gets thrown around a lot to mean a lot of different things. But like, originally, it was specifically about the legal context of a Black woman being discriminated against at a job. And but the problem is, is that like, legally, like Black woman is not a category unto itself, right? And so she either had to prove she was being discriminated against as a woman or she was being discriminated against as a black person. And there was no way to nail that down because the job would go, well, we have other black people because they had, they had black men there that weren't being treated that way. And they could go, well, we have women here that aren't being treated that way. And she was like, no, I know it's the specific intersection of being black and being a woman that my job is discriminating against. And it's like when people are telling you, like, I don't know why he's doing that to you. Was there a part of you that was like, I do. 
It's a power thing. And I think I couldn't even admit to myself, like, it's just as plainly as I do. It's because I'm Black. Because God forbid, you know, even saying that out loud at the time, the fear of having someone negate that, someone I who's giving me a little bit of validation, having them go, well, I mean, because I had people on my team when I would tell them about, because of course, you know, after George Floyd happened, my director calls and asks me how to talk to the team about what is going on. And I tell them about, you know, touching my hair and how it's rooted in, you know, people being in zoos and people, you know, being entitled to the black body. And even when they don't realize, I will tell them a story about how this happened and how it made me feel. And afterwards, touch my hair to acknowledge how pretty it is. As if they are not doing the thing I just talked about. I am not even kidding. I had two people, my black director, we were talking about how his dog walker touched my hair before she even knew my name. And how it was crazy. And then the two women hearing it said, oh, wow, that is nuts. But you do have gorgeous hair and touched each side of my head. And my director looked at me. We made big eye contact. And that was it. And we talk about it all the time. But that's how insidious it is. And how to to then have someone question something that I'm struggling to come to terms with already. And it's someone I like. And I'm like losing white women (laughs) left and right. And I've seen the white women in your comments talk about like, but it wasn't because of race. They didn't touch your hair because of race. It's because it's so different or it's because it's beautiful. It's because it's that. But the part of that story that really sticks out to me is you and your manager locking eyes because you know, because this has been happening to you your whole life because you have been experiencing this your whole, like, you know why it's happening. It's deep. Like we know immediately and without words. And then we will leave and then be like, oh my gosh, you know, there is, these conversations are happening. And what I like to say on my page every once in a while, it's like, I'm giving you information. We, these are not new conversations for us. We have just always have to have these conversations in silent, I mean, in secret, away from you because of the reactivity. I don't know that that's helpful. I don't think it's done us very good. And, you know, the concept when we started, you know, white supremacy, the words, saying the words is like, <gasps> but for who? Who's uncomfortable at hearing the words white supremacy? It's not us. You know, who's going to be uncomfortable at hearing the N word, which I don't love that we turned it into just another word so that people can say it without saying it. Say it if you want to say it. You just not, there's consequences. You know, this whole not allowed business is very white supremacy. We're not allowed because we'll be perceived negatively. You're allowed to do whatever you want. You know what, who was not allowed? The black people, we were literally not allowed to read or write. So, you know, perspective, zoom out every once in a while and think why, who's uncomfortable and why? So you're on your channel, your experience, I feel like has led to, first of all, I love your brain. Because you come up with like the best metaphors. So you talked about like (laughs) the volatility. So like, oh, you bring up to someone like, hey, it's because of racism. They're like, what? No, I'm not racist. That's not right. And it's like this white volatility. And which is, I think, what most people are referring to when we talk about white fragility. And so tell us your metaphor for white fragility or white privilege. So I like to start with white privilege being a booger. Just pretend someone points out your white privilege that it's a booger. How are you going to feel if they yell it at you, right? If I go, hey, you stupid, you've got a booger in your nose and everyone here can see it. Now that might hurt a little, but now you get to take care of that and we get to stop staring at you and you're aware of information that everybody else has. Now, you just say thank you and you wipe it away. Often, no one's going to scream that at you. But accept information, appreciate it, 
and then just keep going because you will be okay. Now, the other aspect of privilege that I think is a little bit more insidious and violent, it comes around what I would consider the pinata of white supremacy. So like the goals of white supremacy being rich and white and thin and young is this pinata up there. And we're trying to take it down. You know, white, white women are now like, ah, we got to smash it. Give us bats. But you're not adept. You just got here and there's a lot of, you know, pulls and levies and there that's going to go on. And we're just trying to tell you like, hey, hey, excuse me. That's not how you do it. And oftentimes you turn around because you're covered by that privilege, that uh, like that blindness. Yeah, the blindfold. Thank you. Of white privilege. And you smack the black woman next to you thinking you're doing something. <laughs> and you're not. That's good. We're trying to help. We don't talk to you because we want to be mean. End of sentence. We've got other things to do, like take care of our lives and make sure we can eat. When we're talking to white women about white privilege or anything, it's for our own survival and for yours. So if we're telling you, hey, you're not doing it right, listen, maybe just and not ask for instructions. Know that you have a blindfold on, so you need to stop swinging, put the bat down and give it to the people who have been here longer. Let Black women tell you, one, we don't even want that piñata. If we could just stop swinging at the piñata and just go play our own game over there and let them just pull at that thing, they'll get bored eventually. They'll just be pulling at the piñata. No one will be swinging. And we'll go play a nice game without bats. One where we don't have to smash things or something. Maybe based on humanity and like sharing resources. I don't know. I feel like that's like... It needs to be like an SNL squid skit. It's so good and visual. Oh, people added such good things to it, too. I wish we had so much more time because I feel like we could keep talking. But I don't want to go too far over our time without giving you the chance to plug your podcast and your social channels. Where can people find you if they want to come and learn? So you can find me at whitewomanwhisperer.com. There are links to like everything else. So it's a nice one-stop shop. I mostly post right now on TikTok and I am out. I have a couple episodes of my podcast out, which I'm very excited about, which is on everywhere podcasts are, including my website. So, you know, we're figuring it out, trying to grow up our community. Definitely consider joining my Patreon. I'm aiming for social capital or over financial capital, trying to start a new model where, you know, the people speak and not one guy with a lot of gross paper that has touched a lot of hands. And is your podcast White Woman Whisperer? Is that the title of it? Yep, it's White Woman Whisperer, the podcast. I try to keep very consistent. Yes, I like that. <laughs> it's everywhere. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. and, and Thank you um, for having me. I just am grateful that you're in my life. Me too. This was <laughs> awesome. Can't wait to do it again. All right, bye. <laughs> bye. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. 
My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.